Welcome or welcome back to the Sonia Looney Show. This is episode 14. And here is a snippet from this week's guest. That stress is to keep you alive. And that same like sensation to keep you alive is performance enhancing. So if you can harness that like increase in stress hormones and cortisol and all that stuff, it's actually a, a nice potent performance enhancer. And it all just depends on how you frame it. That was a snippet from this week's episode about the book Peak Performance with Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus. Brad and Steve had both experienced extreme burnout in their lives. Brad as a hotshot consultant working at the White House and Steve Magnus as a world-class high-achieving runner. As athletes, we always hear about rest and recovery, but what about resting in all the other aspects of your life? Sometimes it's hard to even quantify what counts as rest and what doesn't. In this book, Peak Performance, a common theme is have the courage to rest. And that is something that I constantly have to repeat to myself almost on a daily basis. Personally, I'm a high energy, always on the go type of person. And stopping to take a few minutes to rest during my day is one of the hardest things that I do. I have no problems taking rest days off the bike, but typically what that means is I have a day completely to immerse myself in my work and I'll find myself working 12 plus hour days, not because I have to, but because I absolutely love what I do. But what that does is it means that I get burned out really often because I'm never actually giving myself a chance to rest. When I'm not riding, I'm working. When I'm not working, I'm riding. And I hardly ever take any time for myself. So this book definitely helped teach me that I need to rest. And it taught me also a bunch of different scientific studies on how rest actually makes you more efficient and productive in your daily life. Brad and Steve go into detail using examples from science, sport, and their personal experiences telling us how we actually perform better and are more efficient if we take downtime, especially during those moments when you think it's impossible. And those are the moments when it's really important to stop. In fact, in one of the other books that I love, which I've talked about a lot on this show, The Happiness Advantage, there was an example of students at one of the Ivy League schools who are studying for tests. And one of the students worked every single second trying to study for the exam, and the other student took time to spend with friends. And because they were happier and more rested in their brain, they actually performed better than the student who spent all their waking hours actually studying. So I think that that was a great example, and I love hearing all the different examples in the book of people from business owners to athletes to creatives who take the time to rest and come back to work even more productive and even better at what they do. I also love the pieces of this conversation about motivation and purpose, the ineffectiveness of multitasking, and how to recover from being a multitasker, which is something I'm working on. I don't know about you guys, but having all the tabbed browsing on my internet browser is one of the best and the worst things because I constantly find myself stopping one task and starting another to go back and forth checking the different tabs because sometimes it takes a little while for a web page to load. So during that time, I'll go check another one. So that's actually something that I'm trying to stop doing. And just in general, multitasking has been shown to be ineffective for 99% of the population. So I'm trying to stop believing that I'm in that 1% and stop multitasking. 
In this show, we also talk about words like productivity and failure and what those words mean. What does it mean to be productive and what does it mean to fail at something? Goal setting and expectations and also self-identity. These are all reasons why we work really hard almost to the point or to the point of burnout. So knowing those things and having a self-awareness around your goals and expectations and why you're trying to be productive will really help in the long run. We discuss optimal work and rest intervals. In sports, we often do intervals and have rest intervals, but in your day-to-day work, how important it is to take time off to go for a walk or to pause and take a few deep breaths actually will make you more effective in the time that you actually do spend working. I love talking to these guys and I hope you enjoy this exchange and it brings a new sense of calm and empowerment to take back controlling your time and energy during the days and nights and to help you avoid burnout. Here is Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus with Peak Performance. Hey guys, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's uh, my first time recording a show with two other people, and we're all in completely different places, so it's going to be fun to learn how to do that part. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about the background of your book, Peak Performance, and talk about what motivated you to write the book. So, Steve, why don't you start? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We have uh, very similar stories coming at it from different backgrounds as People who've read the book might find out in the first couple chapters. And really, I think this book came out of like necessity and almost selfish reasons in a lot of ways is that, you know, my background was in athletics and being a really good prep high school miler and and, you know, running phenomenally well and then essentially just burning out. Right. And that's the short story. And the short story on Brad is he was very good at consulting work and academia, all this stuff, the business world, worked for McKinsey and Company and just hit a point where it wasn't sustainable. And I think although that that happened for me in my late teens, early 20s and Brad in his early 20s, I think those experiences kind of stuck with us. And for over the years, just kind of put this idea of how do we do things? How do we reach the highest level of performance, but do it in a way that's sustainable and long lasting for the long term and doesn't cause others to uh, burn out and hit the skids like we did. And maybe Brad can talk a little bit about how those ideas translated into our uh, cooperation on this book. Yeah, totally. So like Steve said, I had been thinking about this for myself, you know, first more than anyone, which is like, now that I'm starting the second career as a writer, how can I get the most out of myself, try to progress in the field without just completely burning out like I had done in the past? And as I dove into the research, I found it just completely intellectually stimulating and also information that I thought would be valuable to other folks to hopefully not make the same mistakes that I had made previously. So I slowly but surely just started compiling notes and I reached a certain point where I thought like, you know, maybe there's enough information to start thinking about a book. So at that point, I sent Steve a note and Steve and I had become somewhat friendly just over the internet, had actually never met in person at this point, but had developed enough trust where I felt comfortable shooting Steve a note, basically saying, hey, these are things that you've written about, I've written about, we've discussed. I'm thinking about writing a book. Do you think that there's enough there? 
And at the time, I was just trying to get Steve's take, like, you're crazy, this is not a book, or yeah, like, roll with it, like, I think there might be a there there. Little did I know that Steve was compiling very similar notes over in Houston, Texas. So I'll never forget, he responded, and he basically just said, like, you're not going to believe me, but I've been thinking about writing the exact same book, and here's, like, 70 pages of notes to prove it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I opened the notes, and, like, there was a good, I don't know, what do you think, Steve, like 65 to 75% overlap in the topics that we had been thinking about and exploring. So at that point, we decided that given our like shared interest in our similar but different backgrounds, it would probably actually make the most sense and just be the most fun to, uh, to team up and do it together. Yeah, I think co-authoring a book would be really hard because you both kind of have to have a similar style so that the book flows nicely and then figuring out who does what. Yes, both of those things are true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, in a lot of ways, it's funny. Like we get uh, questions on co-authoring books a lot because I guess it's not the normal thing to do. But in a lot of th- ways, those concerns kind of took care of themselves once we realized like, all right, what are we trying to do and how do we as a team work together best? So once we put those processes in place where it's like, all right, Brad, like here's your strengths and weaknesses and Steve, like here's your strengths and weaknesses. And it's not bad that like I'm better at this than Brad or Brad's better than this at me. It's just like, let's take advantage of those and then set our uh, process up so that we're not driving each other crazy. And having written a a book solo and then with Brad now, I'll tell you a hundred percent, I'd rather do it with Brad than by myself because the, the beauty of it is like whenever we were stuck, right? Whenever we hit those like writer's block or this, I've been doing this for far too long and it all becomes a jumbled mess. You just turn it over to someone else and it's just like, hey, take a shot at this. And they see it with fresh eyes. So you don't have like those momentum killer stopping points like you do when you're doing it by yourself. Yeah, that'd be awesome to have the experience too, Steve, because you wrote the book, The Science of Running. And you're also a coach. And Brad, you've been a writer. And before that, you're a consultant. So both of you are really good at communication. And I think that that would be key in co-authoring a book. Yeah, totally. There was just like so much back and forth throughout the process. And like, we joked at the start, well, we're either going to like really love each other or really hate each other by the end of this, but there probably won't be a middle ground. And the good news is we've come to really love each other. So not only did we become obviously closer collaborators, but also good friends. But it's totally true, right? I mean, it's like you're an athlete. So like, I think the parallel to athletics is you can have all of these plans, particularly if you're doing some kind of team sport about how things should go. But then inevitably, you're going to have to adapt those plans. And what I learned in this process is like more than the importance of any planning is just establishing a relationship where you can always pick up the phone and make a quick phone call and not feel bad about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'd love to kind of get into the content of the book and also kind of back up a little bit and just define what your stories are. So, Steve, you ran a 401 mile time in high school and it was the third fastest in the world at that time, right? Yes. Yes, it was. So that's kind of my background. And it's funny, for most of my life, that's how I would probably have been identified as, especially until getting into this writing and coaching stuff as like, I was a high school phenom. And the funny thing is that, you know, I kind of came out of nowhere. A lot of people don't know the brief story is that before my senior in high school, I never, 
ever competed at the state track and field championships, right? <laughs> so I never qualified for that. And then my senior year, I jolted all up to not only like state champ and all this stuff, but like third fastest high schooler in the world and running at professional meet. So it was like a meteoric rise. And then I think the uh, the other part of that is like, I've never run a, a mile faster than I did in high school. So in many ways, like my peak athletic standpoint as like as an 18 year old, which doesn't happen from a maturity standpoint, but it's just because I made a lot of mistakes and just trained myself into the ground, both physically and mentally and, and essentially burned out. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting background, but it's kind of guided not only my writing, but also my profession and getting into coaching and all that good stuff. That's amazing. And I also think that the things that you have to give up along the way, I mean, to be able to run that fast, there's so much dedication and a lot of the audience understands the amount that you need to compromise sometimes in order to achieve success. Yeah, you know, and that's why I like talking to individuals like yourself and other runners or endurance athletes is there's a lot of give or take. It's I don't know if it's a sacrifice or if it's just like a choice to be made, but you know, when I compare my high school or even my college experience to anyone else, like it's completely different, right? Because in college, I'm sitting there going to bed at like 9, 30, 10 o'clock because I have to get up in the morning and do nine miles or run a 17 mile long run or run a hundred mile weeks, whatever it is. So I wasn't the normal college experience of going out, going to parties, staying up late, all that stuff. So it just gives you, I don't know, it's a different perspective on life a little bit to learn from that and go through that. And I think that's the big key is like, I don't have any regrets over it. It's something very worthwhile to put to almost go all in on something and be like, forget everything else. Like I'm going all in and we'll see what happens. And like coming away with lessons on identity and failure and how to deal with all that more so than, you know, just having the normal experience. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's the lens that you choose to put on that and saying that I had these experiences, I made these choices, and they've made me who I am today. And ultimately, I wouldn't be doing the things I am today without those. Exactly. It's like I like to say is like, there's no such thing really as failure. It's only failure if you don't take away a lesson from it. And like, Keeping that in perspective allows you to develop and grow as a both as an athlete and as a person. And I think that's one thing that we have in control is we control like that lens that we view our own world in and we create our own story. So it's would have been really easy for me to be like a disgruntled former athlete, former phenom who didn't like hit his goals. But I think the larger message is putting that into perspective and realizing hey, like if I didn't have these experiences, I would not be the person, I would not be the coach that I am today. Yeah, totally. And Brad, you had a similar experience, but just in a different vehicle, right? Yeah, very, very parallel, except not in athletics. And like Steve said in opening, much more, I guess, like cerebrally or intellectually. But yeah, very similar, just like peaked very early, um, or at least was on the way up quite early. And just like took on too much too soon and didn't really respect the importance of stepping away and recovery and then burned out pretty hard. 
But much like you said, you know, like I wouldn't have written this book had I not had that experience. And even to this day, people ask, like, do you regret like your time at McKinsey at the White House and kind of like how you burn the candle at both ends for those few years? And I tell them, like, absolutely not. I don't regret it. Like, I'm hoping to share wisdom that I've gained and I would do it differently if I had to go back. But I can't imagine what my life would be like without having had experienced that. Yeah, I think being able to take those positive things out of burnout, I mean, both of you burned out really hardcore, and you've done nothing but make positive gains in your life from those. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, like Steve said, like the story that you tell yourself is really important. So like I try to focus on like the positive things that um, that I've taken out and just like feeling very fortunate that for whatever reason I was able to get off that path you know, relatively early in life. I went back to study public health in graduate school. I was like 25, 24. So like for whatever the reason was, made that decision to kind of pivot and really start to think about like how I'm personally working and how I could do a better job of it and then extend that to others. Yeah, yeah, I think that's amazing. And I love a lot of your work in Outside Magazine. But let's go to talk about your sense of identity and, and people's sense of identity, because I think that that's what leads to burnout is that our identity is tied to the rewards that we get from being successful. And our passions are rewarded whenever people say good job, or you get a lot of money or whatever. So our identity kind of gets shifted and our, our sense of passion even gets shifted. Yeah, I completely agree. So this is a topic that Steve and I have thought a lot about, and it makes its way into the book, so it's in there. But even since then, like it's just a constant source of conversation for us. So I think when it comes to burnout in pretty much anything, so whether that is athletics, business, or relationship, you name it, there are like these two big buckets. And the first bucket I like to call structural. So that is you're not sleeping, you're eating like crap, you're constantly under like negative toxic stress for an athlete, like you're overtraining, your training program's just stupid, very structural things where if those things aren't right, it doesn't really matter if your motivation is like intrinsic from within, or if you're doing this for like external reasons, you're likely going to burn out simply because like those structural elements like are wacky, right? If you're sleeping five hours a night and training like an idiot, it doesn't matter if you're doing it for the love of the sport, like odds are you're not going to last very long. The second bucket is what I kind of like to talk about, like from where your motivation comes. And for individuals that have motivation primarily focused on external objectives, so like fame, fortune, winning, outdoing competition, needing to feel like in order to have value in this world, like I have to be an athlete, I have to look a certain way, I have to sell this many books, whatever it might be. That's what I call external motivation versus internal motivation, which is I race bikes because I love racing bikes or I write because I love writing books. And what the research shows is that people that have that more internal motivation, they tend to burn out less and ultimately have much well, longer because they're burning out less, but also higher performing careers and then suffer less from mental health issues and things like anxiety. Now, I need to be careful here because like I personally, like, of course, some of my motivation is external, right? Like I want to sell books. I want this book to be well received. Same goes for anything that I write. It's very, very hard unless you're a robot to just like completely ignore that stuff. But I think what's important is to make sure that that side of the motivation kind of stays like a minority driver. And the majority driver, the main reason that you're doing what you do is 
from a more internal, intrinsic uh, drive. Yeah, I love that. Steve, how have you kind of dealt with that sense of identity, both personally and with your athletes? Yeah, you know, developing as a person and a coach, I think this is one of those main topics that isn't considered enough. Because, like, especially in the endurance world, because we're generally kind of that type A or driven or obsessive compulsive type (laughs) where, you know, that's how we all are. So what happens is our identity becomes like intermixed with the sport, right? So it becomes like I'm a triathlete or I'm a runner or I'm a cyclist. And that's almost all you become. And it's this like cascading of events because as you get more successful and as other people know you as like, oh, that that guy ran fast or won this race or performed well, that just further cements in your own mind that like, oh, like I am the runner. And I remember this is like a distinct memory in my own childhood going back to it as when I was graduating high school and they have like the high school graduation ceremony and we had like 800 kids in our graduating class. So a pretty big high school. And they announced like the top 10% of kids first. And I remember like standing up and getting called and everyone was like, Oh, Steve, like you're in the top 10% of the graduating class. Like (gasps) I never would have guessed that. And that's like close friends and other people. And the only reason that was is because they knew all I cared about was running. And my sole identity was like runner and nothing else registered. And because like they had that idea, like I had that idea too. And it's great. Well, it's going well. But as soon as what happens is as soon as you hit a failure point or a setback, then what happens is because your identity is so intermingled. That now, like losing this race or performing poorly, now it's not just like performing poorly at sport. It's an attack on myself, right? It's no longer I failed at running. It's I failed at me, right? Because like I lost, therefore I am a loser or whatever have you, because your identity is so intertwined there. So as a person, it just took a lot of work, a lot of like stepping back and gaining perspective, right? And putting myself in different positions. But the real thing that actually did it was like giving back. Like once I started volunteer coaching, volunteer helping people, I realized like the benefit of doing that. But I also saw things from a broader perspective. So it got me out of my own head where I thought like, oh, it's the end of the world if I like don't make this championship race or whatever have you. And realizing that like, that's not needed. And I think from a coaching standpoint, especially working with like elite athletes, is it's it's training them to be able to like step back, have perspective and separate just a little bit of their identity from what it is they do. And I think this applies beyond sport, because I think so many times people get caught up in like, this is my job. So you know, I am this, you know, I am a accountant or businessman or whatever have you entrepreneur. And I think one of my best examples of this is a young lady that I help coach now, Natasha Rogers, who was an NCAA champion in college, and then kind of shot off into like, you know, success out of nowhere to become an NCAA champ, had an injury, had a freak out, tied too much of her identity to running 
And because of that, like checked out from life and moved down to South America for like a year and stopped running and then came back and I inherited her as a, well, she asked me to coach her. So for the last two years I have, and it's been this process where she got fifth at the U.S. championships in the 10K and then won the U.S. half marathon champs this year. But the process wasn't physical getting her back. It was putting her in a place where she didn't have like this sense of failure every time that, you know, she ran slow. It was separating out her identity from as a person to a runner. And I think that's something that we need to delve into as uh, athletes and people much more so. Yeah, definitely. And even with injuries, people struggle with sense of identity because sometimes you get hurt, especially in mountain biking. And you won't be able to ride your bike for like, I mean, up to six months at times. So it's it's having balance in your life where you have other things that are your hobbies and interests and you can focus on doing those things. That way, if you can't do your sport for a certain period of time, you don't feel so lost. Yeah. One of the most interesting studies I've seen is that they've taken a bunch of psychologists, took a look at injured, I think it was triathletes, right? And they measured blood stuff, symptoms of psychological uh, disorders and other stuff. And what they found is that when, the, when these hardcore triathletes were injured, their symptoms mimicked depression, right? Mm-hmm. Like they almost went into this like short period of depression because they were hurt because of the things we're talking about. So it's really important to get have something other than um, the sport you do or the job that you do in your life that you enjoy to give you this like fallback in case you can't do it, what it is you like. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, there was a time, it was probably a decade ago where I realized, okay, what do I do for relaxation if I'm not riding my bike. And it was always something physical. It was hiking or running or yoga. And I realized that I needed to come up with something else that wasn't a physical act that was something where I could sit inside my house and do in case something happened where I wouldn't be able to do that. And I was a musician growing up, so I learned guitar. And that's been a really great way to complement all the cycling and all the other physical tasks Yeah, exactly. You know, it's funny. I was talking to a sports psychologist friend of mine, and he was telling me a story of this like world class Olympic runner from um, about a decade ago and how he worked with her. And he was like, I didn't give her any secrets on toughness or like dealing with stress, dealing with anxiety. The only thing that she took away was she took on the habit of knitting. And that was great for her. And she like just took up knitting and it gave her something to do that she enjoyed that took that stress off outside of running. So sometimes it's the simplest things like that that uh, make the biggest differences. Yeah. And something in your book that I actually repeat to myself on a daily basis is have the courage to rest. And something that's really interesting about the book is it's not just about being an athlete or about being a business person or an artist. It's being able to take all the inputs and rest from all of the inputs. Because most people aren't just an athlete. They have a family. They have a job. They have a house that they're trying to keep from falling apart. And they're trying to maintain friendships and stay in shape. So how do you actually say, I'm going to have the courage to rest, but I'm going to rest from all of these things? It's tricky, especially for like, you know, I imagine that your audience is filled with a lot of people that like I like to call like pushers, right? So people that just go all in and they really go for it and they live life to its fullest and and they get after it. 
And, you know, back to my own story, well, you can do that for a short period of time. Eventually, it just becomes less sustainable. Or what ends up happening is maybe like you don't have this epic case of burnout, but the quality of everything that you're doing starts to suffer because you just like never give yourself a chance to chill out. So maybe instead of being 100% of what you're doing, you're kind of 80% across everything. And it feels like 100% because you're putting in the energy and the effort that feels like all in. But the quality is just not there because you're not giving yourself a chance to step away and, and kind of recover from it. So the other thing that very much like echoes what you said is that stress is global in the sense that whether you're doing a hard workout or have a hard day at the office or a real hard practice session on the piano if you're a musician or like your house is falling apart and you've got to fix it or deal with that. Well, like there are different gradations of stress and like the physiological impact is obviously not a one for one, the exact same, like your body still takes stress as stress. So it is really important to not just switch tasks, but to try to build some space into your day, into your life where you can really just kind of check out from all of those stimuli a lot easier to say than to do. I think that a place (laughs) where most people like the, the lowest hanging fruit is just sleep. So In researching and reporting on this book, I learned, like, and I thought sleep was important going into this, but I learned just, like, sleep is so important. So whether it is your body that you want to grow, your mind that you want to grow, like, your emotional capacity, none of that stuff happens while you're awake. It all happens when you sleep. So we like to think that, like, during a hard workout, that's when our body's growing. But actually, like, during the hard workout, all that's happening is our body's being, like, torn down. And it's not until we sleep that all the good growth-promoting hormones growth promoting hormones are released and we get stronger. Same thing turns out to happen with our minds. So throughout the day, we're exposed to all kinds of cognitive and intellectual as well as emotional stimuli. And it's not until we sleep that the brain kind of filters, like, out of all the stuff I was exposed to today, first, like, what's worth retaining? Second, what can I connect that to? And third, where should I store it so that it is easily brought back to memory? So it's almost like, you know, again, whether it's a workout or something with your mind, what you're doing during the day kind of just like provides the stimulus, but you don't get the full value of that unless you sleep. So for people that are sleeping less than seven hours, like the easiest way to incorporate like rest in your life at a bare minimum is to really just prioritize sleep and tell yourself that like, the extra 45 minutes to an hour of sleep is almost always more beneficial than the extra 45 minutes to an hour of work. Yeah. And even with getting up in the morning, like my husband works full-time job and he gets up in the morning and trains. And there's been times where I said to him, look, like, I think it's better for you to sleep an extra 30 minutes than to wake up 30 minutes early and start hammering on the pedals. Yeah, totally. And I mean, like, all these things depend too, right? So if like that was the only time that your husband had to train and he was going to go from like 30 minutes to zero, then the trade-off is different. But for a lot of people, we're talking like, I'm going to take my workout from 75 minutes to two hours. And if you're an amateur athlete and you're sacrificing sleep to do a two-hour workout, you're almost always better doing like a 75-minute workout. Because like you can't just rest your way to getting better, right? Like you need to apply some kind of stimulus. It's just like basic physiology. But I think that pushers, like how I described them earlier, they tend not to have any problem with applying the stimulus. They tend to struggle like by far 
most with stepping away and letting their body absorb the work. And for like business people or artists, kind of same thing, stepping away and letting their mind absorb the work. Yeah, I think that people tend to have like pushers or type A personalities. We feel guilty when we're resting, like we should be doing something. And it's really hard to emotionally disconnect from that those feelings of guilt or the feeling of I should be doing something. And I think it's tied to our expectations of ourselves. And if we're not meeting the expectation of what we think we should be doing, then we don't feel good. Something that has helped me quite a bit is reframing rest is not like separate from the work, but a part of the work. So like I no longer tell myself like, oh, like I could be writing a little bit more. I could be pushing this book a little bit harder, but instead I'm going to like go on a slow walk with no device and just check out. Or instead I'm going to go to bed at 830 tonight because I'm tired. Now what I tell myself is like, I'm going to do that restful activity because that is the work. Like it's not separate from the work. Like that's all a part of the work. And that little like psychological switch, or I guess the switch in framing has been helpful for me to actually prioritize rest and do it. Sorry, Steve, I think you were going to say something else too. Yeah, I was just going to comment on that anxiety thing because it is true, like especially in the endurance athlete world, a lot of times you see this in like the taper, right? When athletes know that like, oh, it's a big race, for instance, like a lot of my marathoners like, oh, I'm about to run the marathon. And they almost get anxiety from backing off the training, right? When they lower the training volume too much or take an off day, like a lot of times it's great physically, but sometimes it's hard mentally because they get anxious because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not training. I'm supposed to be doing more, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of people waste the race in that anxiety taper because they don't have that confidence and courage to rest. And what I always tell my athletes is, A, you have to develop and trust the training that you've done and trust that you're that a little bit of rest is just going to put you in a better place. But I think from a coaching standpoint, it's also about like creating workouts and scenarios where you're almost like tricking in people into thinking that they're doing something. So we'll do things like just short, easy shakeouts with like hundred meter strides. Right. And it might be like the most useless workout, like they're going out for a walk, but it gives someone the ability to think, okay, I'm doing something. So it's not like I'm completely uh, resting and it takes like that anxious nervousness away from it. Yeah. And I also think going back to having different things that you're interested in doing, like for me on a rest day, well, number one, I have to stop because I'll, I'll work like 12 hours because there's multiple assets to my business. So I've had to put the ax and say, I'm not doing that anymore. But if you have other interests that you're excited to have more time to do those things where they feel restful for your body or for your mind, I think that's another great place to introduce that. Yeah, 100 percent. Again, if you can switch focus a little bit, I think it it makes a big difference. And that's why as we've hammered home in this podcast is like having something that like keeps you engaged, makes you passionate, et cetera, et cetera, outside of that is uh, incredibly important. Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit into risk taking and we take risks every single day, whether it be putting ourselves out there on social media and hoping that people like what you put out or you show up to a race and you're toe in the line and you're hoping that you're going to put out a good performance or maybe even you're a speaker at a meeting at work. So emotionally, what's the best way to attack taking risks and to avoid those feelings of anxiety and burnout leading up to that? 
So I can start, and then Steve, you can layer on. Sure. So what we learned was counter to what I had thought going into this book. And, and this is another kind of practice from the book that I've relied on heavily in my own life, especially recently with all the speaking that has kind of come with the book and is something that I, I don't particularly enjoy. So the conventional wisdom is that if you're going to be speaking in front of a big crowd, and what I always used to do, you start to feel nervous, or at least I start to feel nervous because I'm not a great public speaker in front of a crowd. You take a few deep breaths, right? You're always told, like, just take a few deep breaths and calm down. But unless you're like really trained in meditation and you've practiced taking deep breaths and you can use your breath to calm you down, which most people aren't, what ends up happening and what ended up happening with myself is the deep breaths didn't calm me down. If anything, they only made me more nervous Mm -hmm. because now by telling myself I need to calm down, I've kind of said something's wrong. And then when I take those deep breaths and I don't calm down, now I'm like, crap, something's wrong. And like, I can't escape it. I can't calm down. And then you have to get on the stage and you're nervous. And that's not a great place to be heading onto a stage. So what these researchers found, and they look at they looked at both um, individuals that were doing public speaking, but also athletes, elite swimmers. And they found that, in fact, like I said, unless you're truly trained in meditation and using breath control to calm down, far better than trying to calm down is actually to reframe the anxiety as excitement. And Mm. all that means is to tell yourself as you're getting on the stage or as you're getting on the blocks um, at a swim meet is when you start to feel a rising heart rate, maybe increased body temperature, even butterflies in your stomach. So all of these physiological sensations, they're neutral. Like there's nothing inherently bad about a rising heart rate before a big event. It's only bad if you tell yourself like, oh crap, I'm becoming anxious because then you've sent this negative message that now I'm anxious. So what the researchers instructed these public speakers to do is when they started to feel those sensations, tell themselves, I'm excited. My perceptions are going to be heightened. And this is my body's way of making sure that it's going to be completely there and in the moment. And what they found is that the group that told themselves that they were excited Not only did they self-report feeling better when they went onto the stage, but they also did a much better job giving their presentation in front of a crowd. That's the research side of it. The reporting side of it is just about every adventure athlete that I've ever interviewed for Outside Magazine. So from Alex Honnold, who's like incontestably the best free solo climber probably to ever live, Jimmy Chin, who might be the best big mountain climber, a guy named Dane Jackson, who's a world champion whitewater rafting. So all of these adventure athletes that are doing things that are like objectively scary to a normal person. I always ask them, I say like, do you like feel nerves? Do you feel fear? And what they say is that they feel nerves, but they're not nervous. And same thing, they feel fear, but they use that fear and they use those sensations and they channel it toward the task at hand. So like, it's not that they're like completely Zen and they don't feel these sensations before they, you know, go climb up half dome at Yosemite, excuse me, not half dome, um, like El Cap at Yosemite. Like Alex is probably feeling all kinds of stuff in his body, but instead of freaking out about it, he's actually telling himself like, and literally using those sensations to channel it towards the task at hand. So that's like the very extreme version. And then the less extreme version is kind of like in my case, which is before a big meeting or before public speaking, you start to feel these things rather than try to force yourself to calm down. It's often better just to say like, okay, like I'm expecting to feel this way and this is my body getting ready to go. 
Yeah, that's really an amazing way to reframe that. I mean, there's definitely an optimal place of anxiety that increases focus and performance. And for me, I also tell myself, this is what it means to be alive. And it's great that I feel this way. Yeah. And from a coaching standpoint and athletic standpoint, it's the same way, right? You know, a lot of times when I work with athletes, when I was younger, I used to go up to them and say like, oh, when they're on the starting line, oh, just relax, you'll be okay, et cetera, et cetera. But when I'm telling them to relax, like the signal they're getting, like maybe subconsciously is like, oh, shit, like I look really (laughs) nervous. That's why he's telling me to relax. So we've changed it to like Rad talked about is like, see, it is challenge and excitement. And I think one point that I think is important is that those sensations, those sensations of like heart rate increasing, a little bit anxiety is they're they're not even just neutral, like they're performance enhancing. And that's what we focus on is that if you think back to it, like the reason that those things occur, the reason that you have like a stress response is because that's what your body developed like, you know, centuries, millennial ago to escape harm, to survive out, you know, in the African safari running away from lions or whatever have you like that stress is to keep you alive. And that same like sensation to keep you alive is performance enhancing. So if you can harness that like increase in stress hormones and cortisol and all that stuff, it's actually a a nice potent performance enhancer. And it all just depends on how you frame it. So I think the message is pretty clear is that it's not to like push it away. It's not to ignore it or grit your teeth and uh, try and tough your way through it. It's to accept that this is normal and like use it in a uh, positive, productive way. Yeah. And I also think going back to why you feel that way, like if you feel nervous before you're about to do something big, it's because you want it to go well. And going back to the process and your preparation and the reason why, like your sense of purpose as to why you're doing that can help calm the anxiety around that because just being focused solely on the outcome isn't necessarily the best way to define define your success as to what you're doing. It's going back and saying, okay, what is my why? And you guys definitely talk about sense of purpose a lot in the book. And I really love that you had a different kind of perspective than I had thought of before. So Brad, do you want to kind of start with that? Yeah, totally. The section in the book on purpose was really fascinating because the research from different fields here just kind of converged around this like wild aha moment for us. And you know, where I'll start is there are these stories that they're rare, but they're not like as rare as we think of maybe it's a mom whose child gets stuck under a car and she's like able to lift the car off the child. I don't know what the exact frequency they happen, but they happen enough where there's a field of academic study that investigates like these acts and it's called either hysterical strength or superhuman strength. And what researchers have found, and and like none of this is too surprising, is that in those instances where someone's lifting a car off of like a child or a pet, if you were to offer that person like a gazillion dollars, literally like a billion dollars to lift up a car, they wouldn't be able to. But they were able to do it when there was another human or animal that they loved stuck under the car. So what researchers speculate is going on is that our brains kind of evolve to protect our body. So when we feel pain, that's the brain telling the body like, whoa, like maybe you should slow down, maybe you should stop because you could be hurting yourself. 
And if you go any further, you could really be doing significant damage. What happens, though, is when we're in a situation where there's this greater than self-purpose, a la, like you need to save the thing stuck under the car, the part of your brain that is normally firing to tell yourself, like, whoa, don't do this, you're going to throw out your back, that part of your brain kind of goes quiet. So you can tap into, like, this primal strength, not when you're thinking about making a billion dollars by lifting the car, because that's very self-centered, And the more self-centered you are, the more that part of your brain that's focused on the self is going to be active and protecting itself. So it's it's going to shut you down. It won't let you do that. But if you can literally like transcend your quote unquote self, you can access like this whole reservoir of strength that you might not otherwise be able to tap into. So again, it's very, very interesting. And you can learn a lot from looking at the extremes. And in this case, the extreme is someone lifting a car off of a child or, or a pet. But in more everyday life, similar studies show like a very like similar theme and similar trend. So there's a whole bunch of research, particularly out of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, that shows that when individuals are in jobs that have a fair amount of grunt work or like grunt effort, so for instance, uh, solicitors raising money for the school or janitors keeping a hospital clean, when their work is framed not as just like cleaning up the floors of a hospital or not just as raising money, but instead as putting low-income person who's super smart through school or preventing staph infection in, in the hospital and therefore saving lives, their performance goes way up. And again, like it, it seems somewhat disconnected, but what's likely going on in those situations are because the individuals are doing their job for a greater than self-purpose, they're willing to put up with more discomfort. So the extreme is the discomfort of lifting a car, but less extreme is just like the discomfort of doing grunt work. And then pretty much everyone that we spoke to, all these world-class performers, we asked them, like, how do you stay motivated when you don't want to? And that can either be when things get really, really hard because it's a tough stretch in the work, or it can be for an artist, like the whole business side of art. Like very few artists go into art because they enjoy marketing. It's kind of something that they have to do. And what we hear is that when they're in those situations where their motivation's waning, if they can come back to like their original why, like why they really do it, and particularly if that why is associated with like forward progress for the world, not just for themselves, they're able to get more out of themselves. And I'll let Steve tell the story of like Meb Kaflesky and Ashton Eaton. There are some like really neat stories out of endurance sports that, that really bring this point home. Sure. Yeah. And I think this is like intuitive when you look at it from the sports world, right? Because you always see people whenever a world record is broken or wherever like a game winning Super Bowl catch is made. No one not very few times do you ever hear someone say like, oh, this is all me. Right. And it's easy to think like, oh, that's just lip service (laughs) that they're they're thinking that it's like, oh, I'm thinking my family or my coach or my team or I couldn't do this without these other people. But I think it goes beyond lip service in the sense that it's true. And like from the endurance world, like Meb Kafleski is my favorite story on this because everyone knows his story of winning the Boston Marathon the year after the Boston bombing took place and how he had, you know, the names of victims written on his um on his race bib and all that good stuff. And then you said as a motivator for something beyond himself for running the race, not just for personal glory. And I think that, you know, how much did that help him? Well, you know, he was a late thirties guy who was 
passed his marathon prime and won a marathon major, which was unheard of. So I think it had a large effect. And on a smaller scale, I think you see this in teams. And a lot of times we don't think of endurance sports as teams, but when you know you're running for someone or competing for someone beyond just yourself, and it could be all the work that your teammates did, all the sacrifice that your parents made, all the volunteer hours your coach put in, whatever it is, like those things that make it beyond just you and yourself, people tend to run better. And I remember an example I had when with a college team I had is we won the conference championship. And that was the first year that we'd won conference or the school had won the conference championship. And I think like many, many years. And I remember going into the race, like we all bought these ridiculous looking like armbands to wear. And, you know, as a college kid, you're sitting there thinking like, oh, this is like pretty dumb, but it's cool, whatever. And I remember our captain at the time just sitting there and on the starting line is like, look, Whenever you start to hurt, just like look at this green, yellow, blue, bright colored arm brand. And remember, we're all wearing them and we're all wearing it because like this is everybody on this line that you're representing. And I didn't think much about it when I was on the line. But then, you know, halfway into a 10K race, like what am I doing? I'm looking down at my right arm (laughs) and my stupid armband that I'm wearing. And I'm like, oh, I'm hurting a lot. But gosh, I've got seven other guys racing and like seven others who wish they could be on this team. So like stop worrying about yourself and like dig. And, you know, we all had the best performances of our season and whether it was an armband or not, who cares? But it was like that reminder that this isn't just like me battling this fatigue myself. It's everyone who's helped me get to this point. And I think if you look at it, when you look at battling fatigue, battling like difficulties, dealing with that self-doubt that comes in your head, just sitting there thinking about like the rewards you'll get in terms of yourself doesn't really matter. Like very few people in the middle of the race, I've tried it before and it doesn't work where you sit there and be like, oh, if I catch this next guy, it's another hundred dollars I win. <laughs> you know, that that lasts for like 15 seconds. And then I'm like, screw it. I'm hurting a lot. Like, forget that. But if I know like, oh, if I catch this next guy, you know, it gives me a point for my team's, you know, score. I will kill myself in order to do that. And I think that holds true uh, regardless. So having the the power to harness like this grand purpose is greater than yourself is probably the biggest performance enhancer you could have. Yeah. And I think that is a good point for people that work on a team at work, because if you're the boss or the manager or the project manager, and you want your team to work better and work together in a, a more collective way, making that point, I think would be a really powerful way to help your team succeed. Hundred percent, and I think that's why these—that's why we wrote this book. Is these lessons are applicable beyond the sports field. Like we use a lot of sports things because that's where our interests lie, but they're applicable in all situations. Like if you have a purpose for a team or a purpose for a company, all of a sudden it has like a uniting feeling. And when you're struggling, when you aren't sure what to do in that that project or your end of the commitment, like it gives you a reason for it's like okay. I need to stop, you know, messing around on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and get this done because I have 10 other people relying on me who like care about me, value me, et cetera. 
So it really just gives that like extra boost of motivation that we don't have when it's just like ourselves. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I want to move on to the productivity for the last part of the podcast to talk about productivity. And there's a couple different things in the book, but the one that I thought was the most powerful and impactful for me was reading about single tasking versus multitasking. Cause I was one or I am, I'm trying not to be this person anymore <laughs> where I was like, Oh yeah, like I'm awesome at multitasking. I got like five tabs open on my browser. And while one's loading, I go to the other and do something And, you know, while I'm cooking, I'm trying to do five different things. And it was really helpful to hear the research behind that. So, Brad, do you want to start and tell us about the research behind single tasking versus multitasking? Sure. So, first off, you're not alone. I fight the same battle. And writing this book has motivated me to win the battle more. So, I definitely can feel your pain because, like, as I'll get to in a minute, it feels really productive when you're multitasking. But what the research shows is that, well, when you're multitasking, you feel like you're getting a lot more done because you have five tabs open instead of one. So you're working on five things. What's actually happening inside your brain is your brain at like the millisecond level is actually switching between tasks. And every time it switches, you lose like an enormous amount of efficiency because like it just sucks cognitive energy for your brain to constantly switch between tasks. So what the American Psychological Association has, has found based on a review of studies is that even in individuals who claim to be really good multitaskers, they get 40% less done when they're multitasking. So not even judging the quality of the work, right? Like the sole purpose that you multitask is to increase quantity. But what they find is that like the actual quantity goes down by 60%, which is just like wild to me. So that's kind of part one. The second part is that there are some individuals who can multitask. So like for whatever reason, and I I don't know enough about like getting really deep into the weeds about what's different about their brain, but certain people can multitask and do it effectively. It's 1% of the general population. So everyone thinks that they're that 1%. And I'm constantly reminding people that like odds are you're not that 1% because like that's how odds work. So it's really, really tempting because we can play these like tricks on ourselves and and really make ourselves believe that we're getting more done because like we're checking all these things off the list and we're doing them all at once. But the actual quantity and most certainly the quality of the work goes down. And and then outside of the lab, like nearly every single world-class performer that we spoke with for writing this book spoke about the importance of like deep focus, single task work. I think multitasking and single tasking is one of my favorite topics because it gives you like a glimpse at our psyche as humans, right? And what I mean by that is like, we're incredibly good at deluding ourselves, right? The reason we all multitask, myself included, is because it feels good. Like it feels like you're getting something done. Like I walk away and be like, oh man, like I was listening to this podcast and writing this We'll also, you know, working on this training schedule or whatever. And I look back and I think like, oh, I got a lot done. But the reality is like we never actually step back and see what we accomplished. And if we did, and that's what the researchers do, you can tell that you don't actually get that much done. But it feels good. And I think that speaks to the larger psychological phenomenon is that like a lot of times we pay attention to the feeling of things and not the like objective truth of things. So it's really hard to convince yourself not to do two, three, four, five things at once. But if you look at it objectively, you just don't get as much done. 
Yeah, and I think that kind of goes along with, in the book, you had something about interval training kind of with your work. So you work for an optimal period, whatever works for you, and I can't remember the exact number of minutes, but you work for a number of minutes, like between 60 to 90 minutes, and then you stop and you take a break and you go for a walk or you do something. And does that help you stay focused? Uh, 100%. You know, it's funny. It's like, if I was going to go tell you to uh, run a really long way and try and get it, get the most quality out of it, like you would probably do it interval style because you'd take some breaks and you could average faster. And the same thing applies to work, right? What happens generally is if we go to work, myself included, and I'm sitting at the office for hours at a time, what happens is I'll be at like 60% for that five hours, because, you know, I do a little bit of work, I get distracted, I go on Facebook, whatever have you, or I just like, go through the motions for a while, I get tired, and my quality suffers, and I'm not getting as much done. So it's not like we're at 100% capacity running full steam whenever we're doing stuff. But what researchers have found is that if you introduce small breaks, so as you said, if you go work for anywhere from 30 to 90 minutes and then include like a five to 15 minute break, then what happens is like it gives your mind like just this brief respite to like rejuvenate and then come back to the work refreshed and able to get closer to 100%. So if I'm breaking, if I'm doing an hour of like deep intense work and then step away for 10 minutes, then I can come back and get another hour of deep intense work. So I'm working near full capacity both times versus going three, four hours in a row of just like moderate kind of crappy work that kind of gets stuff done, but really isn't my best work. And the other part of that is like the break is incredibly important in the sense that it's not a break to check Twitter or to go on Facebook. Because if you look at it, that's not really a break because you're still engaged to a degree. Like physically you're not, but mentally your mind's still going through this like dopamine crazed rush of like swiping and seeing updates and seeing likes and all that stuff and favorites and whatever have you. So your mind's not on a break. Like a break is actually like getting up from your chair, like doing a walk around the office or better yet, a walk outside or (laughs) shutting your eyes for five to 10 minutes even has some very uh, similar benefits to a nap, even if it's just closing your eyes and not sleeping. So it's like really making sure your break is a step away, just as if we were running intervals out on the track. Like if I'm doing mile repeats. My break in between isn't to get on my phone and do intellectual things or check Twitter. Like my break (laughs) is like, oh, God, I have three minutes until this next mile repeat. Like I'm going like comatose, not thinking at all. So saving all energy until I can like hit it again. That's a really good point. Well, yeah, now we need to kind of wrap it up, even though I'd love to spend the entire day <laughs> going over more of the amazing things in the book, but people will just have to pick up and, and read the book. But I love that you talked about going outside and the connection with nature, because I know that a lot of our listeners really feel that relaxation in their mind whenever they're outside. But ha- like the, my last question is, we keep saying let's rest and I'd love for you guys to give just a few tips on what that looks like to rest, like some tips like going for a walk or meditation. But 
how do you know when you actually are rested? Because like as an athlete, you're able to look at things, you know, you can look at numbers like heart rate variability or how you feel on the bike or running or whatever, but like mental relaxation from all the inputs in life, how do you know whenever you're good to go? For me, like my go-to kind of rest from more of like the psychological mental stress is just like a good solid like hike in the woods. And if I have also been training physically hard during the week, so like, let's say like I'm working hard, not just mentally, but also physically, it can just be like a walk. So like, I'll pick a spot that doesn't have a lot of elevation game and isn't too technical. And I think that like, there's separate effects that have been documented from just like some kind of like low level aerobic activity, being in nature and being completely like disconnected from devices. One of my friends, Adam Alter, who's written quite a bit and actually has a book on like kind of like technology and some of the ill effects of technology, he recommends that it's really good to make sure that you spend an hour a day in a place where you wouldn't know what year it is. Nice. Which is actually like somewhat hard to do for a lot of people, especially people that live in urban areas. So I don't always hit that goal, but on the weekends, I really try to like protect these like two to three hour blocks to just like drive to the local regional park and like leave my phone in the car and no iPad, no music, just like take a a walk in the woods. And I feel like so refreshed after that, so much more creative, just like, yeah, completely refreshed. If it's my body that's trashed, so like, let's say I'm training really hard for a marathon and like you and Steve are significantly better athletes than me. So hard is relative. So if I'm training hard for me and my body just feels trashed, you know, like the amongst age group and amateur athletes, like there's such a push for like active recovery. So like go on the elliptical, like go on the trainer. I think all that can be helpful, but sometimes like the best thing that you can do is just like chill out on the couch with a book for a few hours and just like force yourself to do something that's enjoyable. And that's like, has pleasure. And like, it doesn't matter. Like if there's no like suffering or if you're not like clearing lactate out of your muscles, (laughs) Like you're just like melting into the couch and like having a moment where you're not striving for some kind of goal. And that can be super beneficial too. Cool. Steve, do you want to add to that? Sure. You know, uh, all those things Brad mentioned are great. And I think the one thing to add is the social aspect. And what research has found is that like social recovery, so spending times with friends without screens, without phones, et cetera, just like shooting the shit, having a good time can actually shift your hormones to where like you're going to be in a better recovery state than you would otherwise. So what I always suggest is that for athletes especially, but for anyone really like do something social where you're engaged and having a good time, like do something fun. And it sounds like really simple to do, but it's important. Another part of that is if you're an uh, endurance athlete is like schedule some of your recovery runs or your recovery rides with friends. And if it means you go a little bit slower and easier because you're talking most of the way, that's totally fine. Like don't obsess over it. You know, when I was training really hard as a runner, I remember every Sunday we'd have these runs where they would be pretty darn slow, but it would be like everyone from our little community would get together and go on them together. And like the pay, everyone almost left their watches at home and we just had ran around for an hour. Didn't matter how far we got. And it was slow, easy. And we're talking the entire time. So I think like put yourself in situations like that. 
That's amazing that nobody tried to push the pace because a lot of times I'll invite people to come ride with me on my recovery day and then they end up trying to hammer because they're worried that they're going too slow. And I tell them like, guys, you're going too fast. Let's slow down a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, you know, that's the thing you have to worry about. I remember, again, that happens in all sports. I remember one time having to teach this lesson in a group run once when we were all in college where one of our uh, upperclassmen kind of taught the lesson where he had it was a recovery run and everyone's running around and someone keeps pushing the pace because they think like oh I'm I'm young I have to show that I belong and this upperclassman just like took off and hammered this kid into the ground <laughs> on the run right yeah. and then he turns to him and says like all right like we don't do this when it's recovery like slow down stop pushing the pace this is your lesson like learn it understand it and then from then on we didn't have any problems it was a tough lesson to learn but I think like you know it's something that we all deal with awesome well where are you guys going to be speaking about your book so over the past month we've done a fair amount of stuff both in like the bay area in new york city new york city I don't know why that came out so weird so in new york (laughs) and then other places on the east coast it's probably because I'm going back to new york um (laughs) And otherwise, like just like making the podcast circuit and hoping to be as many places as we can spreading this message. Awesome. So where's a good spot for people to find you both personally and to get more information about the book? So people can pick up the book wherever books are sold. So if you want to get it online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or definitely we encourage folks to support their local bookstores too. Online, the book's website is www.peakperformancebook.net. And then I am online at Twitter. Um, I'm at B. Stahlberg and Steve is at Steve Magnus. Yeah, and you guys put out lots of awesome content on Twitter. I know that I'm constantly wanting to retweet pretty much everything that you post. (laughs) Thanks. I'm glad someone's reading it. (laughs) Yeah, thanks so much, you guys. I know you're busy and I really appreciate you taking the time and it definitely makes a difference. And hopefully we can connect again sometime. Yeah, thank you. This is a great conversation. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having us. Thanks. That was so awesome talking to those guys because Peak Performance is one of my new favorite books and I've talked about it in a bunch of previous podcast episodes. Burnout and overworking are things that I definitely do and a lot of the people that I surround myself with are also very hardworking people. So having the courage to rest and being okay with downtime and not feeling guilty about taking downtime is really helpful. I have their book on audible.com and I actually listened to it as an audiobook and I listened to this book twice in a row on my bike rides and it's something that I think about every single day because I think that it speaks to people in a way that is applicable in so many different areas and it helps you remember how important rest is. Make sure you connect with those guys on Twitter. They're very active and constantly posting amazing articles. I know I definitely check almost every single day and am always happy to read all of the different things that they're contributing to. I get home from Columbia today, so I'm pretty excited to tell you guys all about it. At some point in August, my husband and I will record a special edition talking about the race and everything that went on. Thank you so much for giving me your most precious asset, your time and attention. 
It would mean the world to me if you clicked some stars on Apple Podcasts or left a review for my show. That definitely helps with getting it out there on Apple Podcasts. They always look for that in their optimization so that they can decide who they want to share the popular shows with. If you'd like to contribute to my work in a financial capacity, I have a Patreon page which is set up for donations so that I can continue to grow and evolve the show to make it an even bigger impact on people just like you. So the link to the Patreon page is in the show notes and it's on my website. Big, big thanks to my supporters and those of you who who have already donated. It helps so much. I do this for free and I love doing it, but I also have expenses associated with the podcast to make sure that you're getting high quality audio because if I was doing the editing, you guys probably wouldn't be as happy listening to it. Listening to a show is a really intimate experience because it's somebody's voice directly into one of your senses, your hearing. I also have a shop tab on my website, sonyalooney.com slash shop, and we'll be bringing a lot more new products to you this year that I designed. So some of you guys have the magical unicorn socks. Some of you have purchased the stem caps that I've made for your bike that say limits live in our minds or the be brave, do epic shit stem caps. There's water bottles. There's going to be all kinds of new stuff popping up on there. So make sure that you check back. I'm pretty excited about that. Those also help support my work and my lifestyle, and I reinvest it back into what I do. I also send out a free newsletter every so often with updates on everything I'm doing and about new podcasts. You can sign up for that on the website. And again, thank you so much for following my adventures on social media and for all of the comments you guys make. I love connecting with you, and I'm always checking my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and also my YouTube channel. I got this awesome new thing called an Evo gimbal, so whenever I shoot handlebar, chest mount footage, it smooths out the video so that it actually is fun to watch, and it brings a really cool perspective. So I'm always uploading every single week new videos to youtube.com slash MTB. So I got lots of content, lots of fun different ways to connect. I love hearing from you guys. Thank you so much for all of the comments. And again, thank you so much for sharing the show with all of your friends. And we'll see you back here next week. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. See ya.